It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here with you this morning, and I was going to say filling in for Dan Min, the campus pastor, but I don't think I'm really doing that. I'm you know, just filling in the time he would normally have. Um, but um, Hannah, I appreciated what you shared, wherever she is, um, towards this, as the song set wrapped up about why we're here this morning. And, and I trust we're not here for the band, we're not here for the music, certainly not here for the speaker, but we're here to meet with God, right? We're here to to have his spirit minister to us and see what his word has in store for us today. And so before we get into that, let me um, just open us in a word of prayer again. Father God, Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would just be present here in this place, that you would meet with us, that you would minister to us, that you would uh, just open our hearts, our minds as we look into your word and you would see, we would see what we have uh, to do to Surrender more, uh, just to follow more closely. Amen. All right, so um, two weeks ago, so last time we met on campus, uh, we were over in the Flex Theater, and Dan Min started a, a series that he was calling Cancel, sort of a, a nod to, to cancel culture, the, the notion that when people in society today maybe do something or say something that others find outrageous, you know, they, they seek to deplatform them, you know, cancel their Twitter accounts, uh, remove where their podcasts are being hosted, uh, essentially, you know, some, some attempt to, to, to cancel, to, to silence voices. And Dan made the point that were social media a thing when Jesus was here, were podcasts a thing, that he very likely would be canceled as well. Um, and, and in fact, you know, if we read through the Gospels and, and look at the New Testament, and you know, see what happens. Christ Jesus suffered the, the ultimate cancellation, right? And, and Anthony mentioned this earlier as well. We're entering Holy Week, so we call Palm Sunday. Easter is a week away. It's a time of remembrance of Jesus' death and his um, raising from the dead. And, and so he paid the, the ultimate price and the ultimate cancellation, not just being deplatformed, but, but being killed. Uh, the same was true of many of his initial followers. Uh, again, and Dan made this point a few weeks ago that I think only one of the disciples died a natural death. You know, the rest were, were martyred in one way or the other. And so, again, canceled, deplatformed. So two weeks ago, Dan kicked off this series with a passage where Jesus says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And he walked us through that and helped us see that what Jesus is saying there is, you know, abide in me. Believe in me. Find in me your sustenance for life. Today our passage is going to be not peace, but a sword. Not peace, but a sword. Again, maybe something outrageous to, to say. I will be drawing our text from Matthew chapter 10. So you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them. If you've got your phones, pull up the Bible app. Uh, Matthew 10, we'll start in verse 16 and go down to verse 39. And Sean is going to read those verses for us, so come on up. While he's coming and while you're finding Matthew 10, I'll give you a little uh, background by way of introduction to this passage. Um, at the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus is gathering his 12 disciples together, and he's commissioning them. He's going to send them out, and they're going to go out into the towns and villages. He's giving them authority to heal. He's giving them authority to cast out demons. He's giving them authority to preach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's telling them what to expect, telling them how to handle situations that are likely to arise. And um, that's the, the background and the context for these verses that Sean is going to read. So go ahead. 
behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the ones who endure to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house of Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows so sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Uh, thank you, Sean. That was a long passage. Appreciate your reading that for us and leading us through it. So we'll be using different verses within that passage. That's why I wanted to have the whole thing read so we had that context to work with. Uh, initially, we're going to start in verse 34 of Matthew 10. And the tail end of that, Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, I am not a, not a preacher, I'm not a pastor, and therefore I'm going to take certain liberties. Right, and I know that you know a preacher when you're up here, they need to have like three points in a sermon, otherwise it's not a sermon. I don't have three points. I don't have two points. I, I don't know if I have even one point for you today. What I do have is two questions. All right, so I'm going to run with two questions, see how far we get with that. And the, the first question we're going to ask about this passage that Sean just read for us is, what does it mean? What does it mean? And especially this part about, you know, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. What does it mean? Second question, what does it mean? Catch that? Two questions. Right, what does it mean? What does it mean? You know, they look at my notes here. They look the same. They might, hopefully they sounded a little different, a little different intonation. 
And we'll, we'll flesh out exactly what that distinction is. So I don't have points. You gotta get your own points. Um, I'm gonna do two questions. You know, what does it mean and what does it mean? Okay, so since the questions are about meaning, I wanna talk about meaning. How, how do you know what something means whenever you're reading, reading scripture? In you know, seminaries, um, you'll see classes on, on this thing called hermeneutics. It's a you know, 50 cent word for describing the sort of the theory behind how you understand scripture, how you understand or, or extract meaning from it. What's the methodology that one uses for interpreting things? You know, I find it interesting that the Bible doesn't tell us how to interpret it. You know, there's, there's 66 books in the Bible. There's no like 67th book that gets tacked on the end, the book of interpretation that tells you how everything else is supposed to be. It's just not there. You know, there's no you know, preface that we can look at where we're given some information about how to, how to read the scriptures, how to extract the meaning um, from it. And instead, you know, we're left to read the word through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through the study of, of godly men and Bible scholars and theologians. You know, we, we come to a, a method of trying to interpret, trying to understand scripture. We know that as we read scripture, we need to be sensitive to the, the genre. Right. Some parts of the Bible are narrative, sort of historical accounts. You know, other parts are more poetic. Right? They need to be understood as such. Some are more prophetic and might use more figurative language than perhaps you find in the narrative. So understanding what, what the genre is is important. We also get clues about how to interpret and understand by looking at how Jesus understood the scriptures he had in his day, namely the Old Testament, and also the New Testament writers give some clues as well. And what comes across from that is, is essentially that they seem to take scripture pretty much at face value, right? It said what it said, you know, unless there was some clear you know, metaphor or, or figurative speech going on or some prophetic utterance, but generally, you know, take, it, take it at face value. And so that's what we'll do with this passage today, see how far we can get. Uh, the idea is we'll take the plain reading of the word as long as that makes sense. We will keep things as simple as possible, but no simpler, right? So as simple as possible and no simpler. Uh, let me give you a couple illustrations of what I mean by that. And one I'll uh, draw from our, our life group. And so Elaine and I are, are working with a life group this semester. We're going through the book of Mark. Uh, it's just filled with action. You know, Jesus is healing people. He's casting out demons. He's going across lakes where he's walking on water. He's doing all kinds of cool stuff. Um, there's one verse in uh, Mark, yeah, I'll just use it for this, Mark 4, where it says, Jesus got into a boat. He sat in it on the sea, and then he began to teach. So he sort of went out from the crowds a little bit, camped out in the boat, and taught. So we can say, okay, Jesus got into a boat, sat in it on the sea, and taught. When we say, what does that mean? I think it means Jesus got in a boat, he sat in it, and it was on the sea. Right? That's, that's sort of the straightforward reading. So it's maybe an obvious example. What, what I don't think we need to do is complicate things and get creative with it. You know, we don't need to think, well, you know, let's just ponder this a little bit more. Maybe, maybe it's a metaphorical boat. And maybe Jesus getting into it is representative of, and the boat represents God's love. Jesus getting into it represents God's acceptance of Jesus. Being on the sea represents, no, no, I mean, just, there's no need to go there. Just take it at face value, right? So, so that's the, the approach we're going to take. And he gets into a boat, and he's not in it. Okay, so, so that little exercise is an example of uh, using a tool, and this doesn't come from theology, but I'll, I'll use it anyway, uh, a tool called Occam's Razor. Anyone familiar with Occam's Razor? Have you heard of Occam's Razor? I see some heads nodding. 
see some blank looks. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. So it's a, a tool that's used in research for it, um, evaluating hypotheses, for looking at models. Uh, it's used in the sciences. It's used in philosophy as you consider different arguments for things. Um, basically, the idea is that simpler explanations are to be preferred to more complicated explanations. Right, so keep it as simple as possible, but no simpler. Simpler explanations are preferred to more complicated explanations. Um, let me give you an illustration. This isn't from the Bible. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll pose a question and come up with a couple of possible answers. We'll apply Occam's razor and see which one we land with. So my question is, who put eggs in my refrigerator? That's how it's not in the Bible. Right? It's just, so, so let's say I, I leave the house in the morning, come back home, look at the refrigerator. There's a dozen of eggs there that wasn't there when I left. Who put the eggs in my refrigerator? So I could put forth a hypothesis. I could say, you know, someone in my household bought some eggs at the grocery store and put them in my refrigerator. Could be. I could pose an alternate hypothesis that a gang of chickens sneaked into my house. They managed to open the refrigerator. They jumped in. They laid a dozen eggs. They left without leaving a trace. And that's how the eggs got in my refrigerator. Right, so both of those hypotheses are consistent with the observations that there's eggs where there weren't eggs before. The first hypothesis is simpler. So by Occam's razor, we'd accept that. Second hypothesis is much more complex. Brings up a whole host of new questions. You know, how did the chickens handle the doorknobs? How did they get inside the fridge? You know, how did they leave it? Right, so a whole, whole host of things. Again, it's not inconsistent with the observations, but it's just more complex than we need, so let's not go there. All right. So not every passage in scripture, though, can be read simply and taken sort of at face value. Let me give you another example of that. Um, in the book of John, the Gospel of John, Jesus is speaking and he says, I am the door. Do we take that literally? Did he like turn into a door as he said those words? No, no, and, 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 and we, we, we laugh at that because it's ridiculous, right? But Again, if you take it at face value, that's, that's what it says. The text says, you know, I am the door. Um, if we look at the passage in context, we know that Jesus is talking about being the door to the sheepfold, that he is the one that stands there and prevents predators from coming in, prevents um, thieves and robbers from coming in, he provides safety and security for the sheep. He is the door, figuratively speaking, right, and provides that, that safety, that security for the sheep and for his people. So to understand that, we need to look at the context. We need to look at the verses around that, that specific phrase to understand what it means. So let's apply some of these ideas about keeping things as simple as possible, looking at context, trying to, be, trying to get meaning. And we'll apply this to this, this hard saying of Jesus about I came to bring, not, not, didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. So if you take that at face value, then Jesus is saying he's sort of like a, like a Rambo type. right? He wants to raise up a militia, wants to stir things up. Um, you know, arm everybody and, and, and go fight. So we have to ask, is this, so is this passage one we should take literally, like Jesus getting into a boat in Mark? Is this something that's more figurative, like Jesus saying, I'm the door? Or is it something, something different, maybe something between us two or something even, even different? So we look at the context, right? And so, you know, Sean uh, read for us that whole passage, and, and verse 34 is where it talks about, I've come to bring, I, I've, don't think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. If we read further to verse like 35 and 36, he goes on. Jesus says, 
I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So he's talking about like strain in, in family relationships. With the Gospels, we're often fortunate to have parallel accounts to look at to try to understand what something means in one Gospel. Right? We have four Gospels. They're not identical. They talk about some of the same events. So you get different, different perspectives on things that have taken place. Uh, Luke records this, this same, um, it's the same event, this, the same conversation that Jesus had with the disciples. And in Luke 12, he says, Do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Okay, so he doesn't say sword, he says division, which again makes us think, okay, maybe this sword back in Matthew is more figurative and it's really just referencing division. And then Luke's passage, he goes on and talks about from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, and, and so on. So again, this, this refrain about family relationships being fractured. So it seems what Jesus is talking about is division amongst people, especially within a family. And we can dig a little bit deeper on this and go to an even broader context um, by looking at some of the other verses in Matthew 10 that were read for us. As I mentioned at the beginning, this is an account of Jesus sending out his disciples. He had 12 disciples who were going out. He was giving them power to heal, power to cast out demons, uh, power to preach with, with, with power, and telling them that they were, should expect persecution. They should expect suffering. You know, they should expect difficulties along the way. You know, in Matthew 10, 16, Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Beware of men. They will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in the synagogues. A few verses later, in verse 21, he says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. So here Jesus is mentioning you know, fathers being against children, brother against brother, division within the family, similar to what we saw toward the end of Matthew 10. He says you'll be hated by all. He says you'll be persecuted. When you are, what you should do is flee. He doesn't say fight back. He doesn't say get out a sword. He says flee. So there's no mention of revolution, no mention of violence, no mention of weapons. That clearly isn't the, the focal point in this passage. All right, let me dig a little bit deeper into context. We've looked at the, the passage itself and the words on the page and what they say. Let's try to place ourselves back in the first century when Jesus is talking to these disciples. What would these words have meant to them? What would it have sounded like? What's their, what's their cultural context? Where are they coming from? How would they have heard these words? Because like a couple thousand years have passed. We're living in a different place, a different era, and sometimes good to go back and say, how, how would the original people who heard this, how would they have heard this? What would this have meant to them? So the disciples who um, Jesus was talking with, they were, you know, they were Israelites, right? They were Jewish, and being Jewish, they were waiting for the Messiah. You know, that was a big part of, of what was after they, people understood the Old Testament pro promised a Messiah would come, and they knew the prophets. They knew the prophecy likely that this Messiah would come. He would establish a kingdom. He would rule with righteousness. He would bring peace to the entire world. They'd be familiar with, with prophecies like, um, you know, I'll just use a couple here. Isaiah 9, 6. This shows up on Christmas cards a lot. 
Uh, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, Isaiah 11 is another passage that um, talks about this Messiah coming and, and bringing a kingdom, and it describes some characteristics of this kingdom. And I'll just use one verse there. Verse 6 says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. So you have the wolf and the lamb, the leopard and the goat, you know, just hanging out together and being cool. Right, so, so the whole like, food chain, the whole circle of life stuff, yeah, it doesn't seem to be there. So, so they're talking about this king, this Messiah is going to come, is going to be so peaceful that even you know, the wolf and the lamb are going to get along. Right? Um, Zechariah 9 is another passage. Um, I'll just read part of verse 10. It says, he, will, he, meaning Messiah, will speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. So, so these disciples... You know, they were brought up in Jewish traditions and Jewish culture. They knew a Messiah would come. They knew the Messiah was prophesied to bring a, a, a rule, a kingdom, a kingdom of peace. And Jesus was outlining these experiences they would have as he was sending them out. He said, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be flogged. You're going to be hated. You're going to be like sheep in the midst of wolves. It doesn't, doesn't sound like peace. It doesn't sound like a, a kingdom of justice. I wouldn't be surprised if the disciples were a little confused. I'm, I'm sure they were a little concerned. I would be. Hey, I want you to go on this mission, and oh, by the way, you know, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be... And, and if things get really bad, just run away as fast as you can. Right? So I think part of what Jesus is doing in this passage is trying to reassure the disciples that, that, that he was their guy, he was the Messiah. And the problem wasn't with, you know, they were mistaken about who the Messiah was. They were mistaken with, you know, what the Messiah was going to do when he came. Um, the, the passage in Matthew 10, right after about, you know, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. He talks about divisions in family. That's actually taken from a book of prophecies. That's taken from the book of Micah in, in chapter 7. So I think what Jesus is doing is reminding the disciples that there's other prophecies that talk about the Messiah. And that describe what's going to happen when he comes. And so there are prophecies about you know, division within families, prophecies about difficulties, prophecies about a suffering Messiah. And, and I think the people at the time were focusing more on the, the good stuff. You know, we, we like the Messiah. He's going to come and rule. He's going to conquer our enemies. He's going to provide peace. Right? That's good. And, and the, the other stuff maybe didn't get emphasized as much. So Jesus takes them back to the prophets and says, yeah, every, everything you've heard, that's, that's all true. That's all good. It's all going to happen. But there's more. Right? And, and so he reminds them, by you know, using this passage in Micah 7, that what he's talking about is something that has been, been foretold. So he's telling them, you know, I understand that you know the prophecies about Messiah coming to rule. I understand that what I'm telling you doesn't fit with that picture. That's all going to happen, just not on this trip. You know, this trip, Jesus, what he's saying, is about bringing peace with God to individuals as opposed to the earth as a whole. Jesus, the Bible tells us Jesus will come again. He will return. He will set up this, this kingdom where he will rule with righteousness and justice, where there will be true peace. Right? Just that wasn't the, the object of, of his first coming, so he's trying to explain that as best he could to the disciples. Okay, so that, that cultural context, I think, helps us understand this as well. Uh, let me ask you a, a 
another question as, as we try to get more information so we can then you know, decide where to land with what this, what this passage means and what it's saying. Um, does Jesus say anything about peace anywhere else in the Bible? Anybody familiar, maybe? Was he like pro-peace or anti-peace? Yeah, thumbs up. Yeah, good, okay. Yeah, 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 and, and just a couple examples. I mean, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the sons of God. Uh, Jesus talks to his disciples in John 14. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. You know, the, the angels, when they appear to the shepherds to announce Jesus' birth, glory to God in the highest, on earth, peace, peace. So even at his birth, peace was, was announced and foretold. So Jesus is big on peace, right? Um, okay, let me, let me test your, your memories or, or Bible knowledge a little bit more. We're talking about peace. Are there any other accounts in Scripture involving Jesus and a literal sword? Right, because this pastor said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Anything else in the Bible about Jesus and a real sword? Not a, not a figurative sword, right? You got the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians. Revelation talks about a sword. Anything about a sword? Now, you know, if, if, if this were a class, I'd call on people, right? And I'd, I'd, I'd know who you all are. In fact, I know who a lot of you are. Uh, but I call on people and, and find somebody to answer these. So, um, but this isn't that, so I won't. So there's an account in the garden when Jesus was arrested. And again, this ties in with the, sort of the part of the calendar year where we are now looking forward to, to Easter. When Jesus was, was being arrested, um, one of his disciples drew a sword and basically attacked, uh, I think it was a servant of the high priest, and sliced off an ear. And what was Jesus' reaction to that? It wasn't that, way to go. Yeah, where are the rest of you guys and your swords, right? No, no. He, he healed the guy, you know, made the ear whole, um, told the disciple to you know, put that away. Um, let me see if I have the verse here. Yeah, dude, it says, yeah, put your sword back in its place. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. So he wasn't a big sword guy, right? He was a big peace guy, but not a big sword guy. All right, so, so we got a lot of different pieces here, and let me try to put it all together to answer our first question. Right? What was our first question? What does it mean? What does it mean? Very good. So you are listening. That's good. All right, so if we use Occam's razor and ask what does this mean, again, sort of intellectually, just what's the text saying, we really can't land on the notion that you know, Jesus is trying to start some militaristic cult and trying to arm everybody and, and engage them. You just can't, you can't get there from what we're given. It just doesn't fit. It's just not consistent with all the observations, we would say. So what does it mean? Well, I think in part, it's something Jesus said to help his disciples understand prophecy and what they were about to experience in their mission, right? Help them understand that their view of what Messiah was all about is, is not wrong, but it's incomplete, and they had a little more they had to, to patch in there. I think it also means that being a follower of Jesus can sometimes strain or even sever relationships within families, within friends. I think that's a real thing. You know, perhaps some of you have experienced that. Perhaps some of you are, are wrestling with that even now. Uh, you, you may or may not know that it happened to Jesus. He had strained family relationships. You know, in Mark's gospel, um, it tells us Jesus' family thought he was out of his mind. They thought he was mad. In John's gospel, it tells us his brothers didn't believe in him. 
So you can imagine conversations around the dinner table in, in that household, right, with, with a, those types of just divergent viewpoints had to cause some strain in this family. As we seek to understand these verses, we can move ahead a little bit to verses 37 through 39 in Matthew 10. So after, saying, after Jesus says, you know, think not that I've come to bring peace, I've come to bring a sword, he goes to Micah 7, 6, um, reminds, of, reminds the disciples of that prophecy. And then he goes on and expands upon that and builds on it in verse 37. It says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Hmm. So what does, what does that mean? I think it's a call to recognize that following Jesus comes at a cost. It's a passage. It sounds like Jesus is, call, is calling his followers to a radical commitment. You know, to love him more than family to take up a cross, and, and again, to get into sort of cultural context, again, to take up a cross, maybe sound something different to us than it would to his listeners then. You know, the, the Romans were, were ruling Israel at that time. Crucifixion, death on a cross was a means of, of punishment. They would have been very familiar with that. And when somebody takes up a cross, the purpose is to carry it to their point of execution and to die. So Jesus is telling his followers, you know, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So it's, it's a call to die, not physically, but to die to self, to die to our ambitions and to follow him wholly and wholeheartedly. Sorry about that. I was silenced. So it's a call to a, a radical commitment. Um, it's not a commitment to any cause. It's not a commitment to a movement. It's not a commitment to an organization. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to start a club. You guys all want to join? Right? It's, not, it's not a commitment to that. It's not a commitment to a set of behaviors. It's not a commitment to spiritual disciplines either. It's a commitment to a person, a commitment to Jesus himself. That's what he's asking for. So he's laying claim the top priority. Um, I don't always like to think of priorities as being linear. And so instead of saying like the number one or top priority, I'll call it the central priority. Right? Jesus is saying you know, I need to be your central priority. The rest of your life needs to be organized with me at the center. I need to be worthy of greater love than any member of your family, worthy of greater devotion than anything else you could pursue in life. All right, so that's, that's the first question. What does it mean? All right, so, so intellectually, there's where we are. Um, you know, if this were a classroom, and if this was an academic exercise, you know, we, we could stop right there. We could say, hey, we've done some critical thinking. We've applied some logic. Um, I could, could have you pair up in groups of two, discuss what we just talked about, write a short essay, turn it in on your way out, and we call it a day, right? Class would be over. Uh, we're not in class. We're in church. So we're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. That means there's no homework. There's nothing to turn in. Uh, no, there's, there's homework, but nothing to turn in. Nothing, nothing will be graded. Um, so since we are in church, knowing something intellectually, that's not the goal. That's not the end game. Right? So I said I had two questions for you. One is, what does it mean? Sort of up here, what's, let's understand what it means. Second part is, you know, what, what does it mean to me? What's it mean in my heart, in my spirit? What's, what's God trying to say to me through this passage now that I understand it intellectually? Is there something for me spiritually, something for me personally, something for me that the spirit is, is talking about? 
And that's a question we each need to answer individually. I can't answer for you. Um, I can answer for me. You know, one of the benefits of opportunities like this, where I get a chance to, to study and, and to teach, I'm sure Dan Ben would say the same, anybody else who's you know, leading a, a Bible study group, usually the person who does the studying and does the preparation often gets the most out of it. So, so I appreciate you guys all coming today, but I already got a lot of blessing out of this, just preparing for this, this, this message and, and seeing what God had in store and um, did some wrestling on my own. What does this mean for me to, to follow Jesus you know, supremely and uh, make this radical commitment to him himself? So I encourage you to think about your, your own life. You know, are there areas that are keeping you from allowing Jesus to have that central role, that central place? Something's keeping you from deepening your commitment, deepening your trust. You know, there's a whole list of things. You know, it could be, you know, his GPA. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, your natural abilities, natural talents, family, boyfriend, girlfriend, career plans. Um, now, I want to be clear, we're not called to, to reject those things. Those are all good things. Jesus calls us to place him first, make him the central thing. Right? Not to reject everything else, just to make him at the center. In fact, the greatest danger, probably the greatest competition, doesn't necessarily come from things that are bad. But it comes from things that are good. Sort of the temptation to settle for second best instead of the best that God has for us and being satisfied with that. Another thing I want to share as I uh, start wrapping things up here is, you know, just a question, why does Jesus call his followers to make this radical commitment, right? To, to take up our cross, to essentially die to ourselves, put Jesus at the center. Why does he ask that? It's... It's not because God needs me to follow him so that he feels successful. It's not because God needs me to follow him so he feels validated in some way. It has nothing to do with satisfying a need God has. Right? God doesn't need me to follow. He doesn't need you to follow. It has everything to do with satisfying a need that I have, that you have, that we each have. You know, I need to follow Jesus in that radical way because it's, it's what's best for me. It's the life I was created to live. It's the life you were created to live. I'll close with a quote from C.S. Lewis. I think ties things up for us. Uh, he writes, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. So I want to encourage you, go after God's best. Pursue what you were created for. Live the way you were created to live. Don't be so easily pleased with, with temporal joys. I mean, they're good things, but in comparison to the best that God has for us, they're, they're, they're mud pies. They're mud pies. There's much, much more. So let's pray. Father, I just... I'm going to give you thanks for the gift of your word and how, uh, though these words Jesus spoke to a, a dozen people a couple thousand years ago, uh, they can still hit home in my heart. And I pray that the hearts of uh, these students here today as well. And Lord, I ask that we each take time uh, to process, to, to think, to reflect, to let your spirit have its, its way, uh, lead us in the path you'd have us to go. 
Lord, we love you and just give you thanks for all the great things you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.